Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. The title of this morning's message is When No One Else Has Faith. When No One Else Has Faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. The Bible says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Over the next four Sundays, counting today, we're going to explore the idea of defining moments in a believer's journey. For some time now, I've wanted us to study faith and the way it operates in a believing life. And so, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the faith chapter, the hall of faith, and it describes some of those great defining moments in the lives of different biblical characters. And you may be facing a defining moment. You say, well, I'm not sure what one is. Well, one of the ways to get a handle on what a defining moment is, is to look back over the course of your life and ask the question, what if something had not happened? What if I had made a different decision at a certain moment in my life? What if, and what would have happened? And, and all the things that you come up with when you ask that question, what if? typically are defining moments, are those moments where they were watershed-type decisions, and in particular for a life of faith, whether I trusted God at that moment and listened to Him and did what He was directing me to do or not, has profoundly affected the course of my life. What if I had stayed at a particular school, I was at the University of Texas. What if I had stayed in that program, which was engineering, and had not transferred to Blue Mountain College in North Mississippi to study ministry things? Would I have met my wife? I remember the first time we met. We were in the back of a church after a Sunday night service. She was standing there with her parents. I remember vividly. And... uh, Someone introduced us, and I went up and, and uh, spoke to her. And I, uh, I, would, I would like to tell you it was love at first sight, but I do remember it was striking. It was, it was significant enough that I remember that moment. She does too. And we talk about it now because we have this, this picture in our minds that the angels of heaven were standing at the balconies leaning over and saying, it's happening, it's happening. But that wasn't the defining moment when we met. It wasn't the defining moment when I asked her out and we began dating on a regular basis and then broke up and then started dating again. Those weren't the defining moments, although I'm sure it gave the angels some nervousness. The defining moment was in December of our junior year when I was on my knees in the room where I stayed And I was asking God for clarity. Is she the one? That was the defining moment. And that 
that understanding that at that moment I needed to know what God's will was and what he was leading, what he was guiding me to do, has affected not only our lives for some 32 years now, but I'm sure it affected the six children that we have (laughs) and their lives and the new grandbaby that was born last Monday. Yeah, I was an ordinary pastor last week. And today I'm a grandfather, so everything's changed. It certainly affects all of those things. But, but the defining moment was recognizing that God was speaking and he was directing me through his word and through that prayer time to ask her to be my wife and to spend the rest of her life with me. That's a defining moment. By definition, a defining moment, what is a defining moment? Here it is. A defining moment determines whether you will experience or miss God's plan for your life. And the Bible is full of those kinds of moments, not just in Hebrews 11. And we're going to look at several of these over the next few weeks, and so we're calling this a defining moments series. This particular verse, verse 7 of Hebrews 11, is describing a defining moment in the life of Noah. Humanity was irreparably marred by sin. God had determined that the only answer for what was happening was a kind of catastrophic judgment where every human being on the planet was going to be washed away in a flood and except for Noah and except for his family. According to Genesis 6, Noah was the last man of faith on the planet. He was the last one who walked with God. He was the only one. And he has this defining moment. God comes. God speaks to him. What is he going to do? And in his case, he trusts God when no one else on the planet had the faith to do it. So how can I live a life of faith when I'm surrounded by a world of unbelief? Sometimes in my own family. Sometimes in, in a church. Sometimes in a community. When you're surrounded by people who don't believe and trust, how can you exercise faith? First, prepare for defining moments by walking with God in the ordinary moments. That's how you get ready for those major decisions is you follow him in all the smaller decisions on a day-by-day basis. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, we read this description of Noah. Noah was a just man Perfect in his generations, Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. There are two reasons why Noah was prepared. He was ready for that defining moment when it came. He could have missed that moment, but because he walked with God every day, he was training for that moment. Because he walked with God in the little things. Lord, what do you want me to do about this? How do you want me to respond to this circumstance and this need? Walking with God is not just something where I, I say a prayer in the morning and then I go on and do whatever for the rest of the day. Walking with God is a relationship. It's interactive. I speak to him. He speaks to me. And I follow him. And I walk with him. And because Noah did that every day when the great time came where he was going to have to exercise faith and where he needed to recognize God's voice, he was ready. How many defining moments 
have you and I missed because we weren't listening? We weren't paying attention. We weren't seeking Him. And that's the part that should cause you and I to be absolutely scared to death. That I could miss the greatest moment of my life because I was simply not paying attention. But he was. And because he walked with God, he was prepared for that moment. He was also prepared to take his daily experience of walking with God, and and he was prepared to apply it to that defining moment. It was something he had trained for. It was something he had done all his life. And he was one of the only people on the planet that did that. And so when the moment came, he was ready. And he trusted the Lord. When my kids were little, not infants, but toddlers, it started with Rachel, who's sitting here. I can't do it with Rachel now, but when she was a toddler, I would take Rachel when she was little, and I'd hold her up, and she'd smile. She wasn't talking yet, and then I'd throw her up a little bit, and I'd catch her. And there was that moment at the top of the, the ark, at the top of the throw, where there's this look on her face of questions and some concern and anxiety. Is daddy, what is, is he going to catch me? And the same look was on her mother's face. But when I would catch her, she would smile and laugh and say, again. And then I would do it again, maybe a little higher. And a little higher, and each time I would catch her. And, and, and then she wasn't even afraid anymore, wasn't frightened anymore. In fact, it was kind of scary because she would, I'd be laying on the floor, and she would dive off the couch and say, catch me! But I always did. Even in the kamikaze situation, I would catch her. And that's the, that's the significance of why you and I need to walk with God in the small things on a day-by-day basis because there's going to come the moment where God is going to bring a big one to you. It's going to be a defining moment. And you're going to need to know that He always catches you. And you can trust Him. And He won't drop you. Prepare for defining moments by walking with God in the ordinary moments, knowing He will always catch you. But secondly, I live a life of faith when I expect every defining moment to arrive with a word from God. You need to expect that. Expect every defining moment to arrive with a word from God. In our verse, verse 7, it opens with this phrase. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. And so at that moment, he is exercising faith, but why? Some information came to him. God spoke to him. And because of that communication... He had a basis for his faith. So true biblical faith is not faith and faith. You say, well, what's faith and faith? Faith is where I'm thinking that if I believe hard enough or intensely enough that it depends somehow on my exercise of faith and I have faith and faith, then God will do something. God will act. But let me tell you, that's not biblical faith. That's magic. That's thinking that somehow I can manipulate God if I do all the right things or I do something in particular. Biblical faith is not not that. 
if I think that faith and whether or not God's going to work is dependent on the quality and the intensity or the strength or the size of my faith, when Jesus only said a mustard seed faith was sufficient to open the door of heaven, if I persist in that, what do I say to a person who prays for someone and they die? What goes through their mind if that's what biblical faith is? God didn't take care of that person. God didn't answer my prayer. God didn't intervene because there was something defective in my faith. So it's not, biblical faith is not faith in faith. Biblical faith also is not a blind leap into the dark. And sometimes because I don't know the future and I can't see what's coming, divinely warned of things not yet seen, because I can't see what's coming, sometimes we think of faith as risky. Sometimes we think of faith in terms of taking a, a leap of faith. But the truth is, biblical faith is not a leap into the unknown. It's not a leap into darkness. Biblical faith is always grounded in what we are trusting in, who we are trusting, the object of our faith. And so in this particular case, biblical faith is a response to something God has said. It is not belief about God. It's not really belief in God. It's just believing God. And that's what This man was doing in this defining moment. A word from God had come. God speaks to us in many, many different ways. In the course Experiencing God, which I highly recommend by Henry Blackaby and Claude King, they they summarize the different ways God speaks in the four categories. And they are that God speaks through his word. We know that. He speaks through the scripture. God speaks through prayer. There are times in prayer where he brings thoughts to mind and it's clear that God is speaking. He speaks through our circumstances, open doors and closed doors, things happening, things not happening. And then he also speaks through other believers or through the church. Those are the four major channels God uses, but they may look very different at different times in your life. So why did Noah build the ark? because God spoke to him. He was divinely warned, the scripture says. He recognized that God was speaking because he walked with God every day. God told him ahead of time what was going to happen, and he told him what to do. And so Noah, for years, builds a massive ship out in the middle of nowhere, somewhere in South Dakota. I think that's where nowhere is. Thousands of miles from the ocean. And God tells him to build this, and he does it for years, and it becomes the greatest thing that Noah would ever do. It was the defining moment of his life. It was one of the primary purposes for which he was made and why he was on earth. That's the moment you and I don't want to miss, and that's what was happening to him. So expect that a defining moment will arrive with a word from God. We live by faith by maintaining a daily walk, obeying God when he speaks, and then thirdly, learn to tremble as you carry out his direction. Learn to tremble, to tremble. You say, why are you seeing that, Don? Look at the next phrase. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, and here it is, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark. It tells you how he built as he worked each day on the ship. It tells you how he was working. He was moved with godly fear. The sun was shining. 
the birds were singing, and everybody on the planet was sinning, sinning, and Noah kept working on this ark. Now, why did he do that? Because the Scripture says he was moved with godly fear. Thomas Manton, an old Puritan author, preached a sermon on the same verse, and he said, the difference was that the people of the world did not tremble with fear until the water reached their rooftops, but Noah trembled in fear when God simply spoke. God simply spoke. He trembled before the Lord every day that he built that ark because he was on a sacred mission. He had been called to this. He was made for this. And so am I doing what God wants me to do with my life? Am I engaged in a sacred task because there has been that moment in my life where I knew why I was here and what I was called for? Do I tremble? Maybe at one time you trembled because God directed you to do something. (laughs) And you knew it was him. And you said yes, but you were scared to death. You know, I, I know pastors who genuinely experienced a call from God, but they don't tremble anymore. And I know people involved in church who that time they were asked to teach a Sunday school class or that time they were asked to serve as a deacon or that time they were asked to serve on a committee, they trembled that God would open up an assignment like that for them. And they trembled, but now you've done it for a while. There's no more trembling. When God speaks to you and me and leads us to do something, every day I've got to do that thing in faith. And every day I've got to do it with a sense that God is present. And in his presence, there should be an awe. And I should tremble. So I can live a life of faith by maintaining a daily walk with God, obeying God when he speaks, and by trembling in a moment-by-moment obedience with an always-present God. But then fourthly, I live a life of faith when I endure the rejection that accompanies a step of faith. You must endure the rejection that accompanies a step of faith. The enemy hates people who live by faith. You'll be attacked, and you've got to expect that when you obey him, we're going to see what happens. Verse 7, there's another phrase. Let me read it again. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark. And then look at these next two phrases. For the saving of his household, and then the next phrase, by which he condemned the world. And the by which refers to his faith. He prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world. Look at that word, that word condemned. It looks like if he condemned the world that Noah went around like some crazed street preacher scolding everybody. But that's not what the Bible says he was doing. It was by faith, it says, he condemned the world. By faith. He condemned the world. His daily trust in God was obvious as he worked on the ark day in and day out. And this presents a constant opportunity for friction between the person who is walking by faith and those who are not. And so you notice these two results, the two outcomes of Noah's faith. On one hand, it involved the saving of his household. On the other hand, it involved condemning the world. 
One group responds and is rescued. The other one rejects what he's saying, rejects what he's doing, and they are destroyed. You have salvation and division. You have changed lives and you have hardened hearts. When you walk in faith and you receive that moment where you know God is speaking and you say, yes, Lord, I'm going to do what you want me to do, it is always divisive. And it was in Noah's case. When you take a step of faith, there will always be two reactions. Some will follow you like Noah's family followed him into the ark. But others will reject you or worse. So I live a life of faith by first maintaining a daily walk with God and then obeying God when he speaks by trembling in a moment-by-moment obedience and by enduring rejection. But finally, I live a life of faith by never forgetting that a flood is coming, that no one will survive apart from him. A flood is coming. Listen to the last phrase. By faith, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the phrase, the, the world. And then it says, and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Look at that. And became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Tommy Owens, our chairman of the deacons, and I went to lunch this week. He came by and picked me up at the house, and um, Gail let him in. I had gone to the back to grab my coat, and I wanted to show him my, my study, where I study. That's why it's called a study. I study in that room. But it's also got a little bit of man cave characteristics to it. I got chairs in there that I like to sit in. I have a desk I like to work at. And, and of course, he noticed on the wall a gun rack with some antique collector type guns, rifles, and a big deer trophy head on the wall. And I'm going, I, I'm glad Tommy's seeing this. Because that's, that's always impressive in northeast Arkansas. And so I was kind of, I was just really glad he got to see that. I thought, he's going to be so impressed. And then he's, he looks at the guns and he says, oh, those are some nice rifles. He said, um, he said where did you get those? And then my moment was gone. And I, I kind of hung my head and I said, well, Tommy, a couple years ago, my dad, my birth father, passed away, and I inherited those, those guns. He was a big collector, and so I, I inherited those. And he said, that's, that's a great deer head on the wall trophy. He said, did you shoot that? <laughs> I said, no, my, uh, my dad shot that. I inherited that, that deer head. And see, when you inherit something, somebody else works for it. Sometimes they work for it all their life. They expend energy and time, and they do all the effort, and they do all the work. And when you're the heir of something, you get to get all of that, everything that they had, and, and you got it, but you didn't do anything for it. You didn't, you didn't collect those rifles. You didn't collect 
that deer head. And so whoever's the heir winds up with everything that someone else earned, someone else owned, someone else possessed. What did Noah inherit? Look at the Scripture. What did Noah inherit? He inherited what? Righteousness. Righteousness that is by faith. How did he receive it? He did it through faith. Now, in every other religion, in every other heart in this room, for each of us, there is a deeply rooted tendency to believe, a conviction that the purpose of religion is for you and me to become as good as we possibly can become throughout the course of our life And then when I go to meet him, I come to him and I present myself and my goodness and what I have accomplished as a gift. Here I am. Judge me. Every other religion has that posture, has that attitude towards God. Something that I earn, something that I accomplish, something that I own. But what Noah did and what Noah illustrates for us is it's not like that at all. If anyone could have earned the the righteousness stamp from God. It was Noah. He was the only one on the planet who walked with God, the only one who was seeking him, the only one that heard his voice at a defining moment. Noah did not earn it. He received it. He received it. Righteousness. And we know in hindsight, having the New Testament and knowing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus Christ obeyed the Father Every moment, every breath, every second of his life, he never failed, never did anything wrong. And the Father looks at him and loves him and cherishes him, and he is precious to him. And what have you inherited? Everything that Jesus has. Everything that Jesus is. When you and I trust Christ, we get all of that as a gift. Now, why? Why is it important that we don't forget that a flood is coming? Why did the writer of Hebrews take that statement that Noah inherited righteousness according to faith? Why did he take that and tack that into the, the story of Noah? Because he needed that righteousness. What was that flood coming to do? It was coming to destroy the entire human race that had rebelled and rejected God. None of them were going to survive. Every one of them was going to drown. Every one of them was going to die. Every one of them was going to suffer the judgment and consequence of God. And so as you and I serve him, nobody else may believe. No one else may pay attention. No one else may care. And you may experience division, sometimes even in your own family, because you're trusting God and the rest are not. But why do you keep doing it? Why do you keep going on? Why do you keep trusting him? Why? Because a flood is coming, and I need to trust him to save me. No matter what I get right, no matter how many times I say yes at that defining moment, I still need righteousness as a gift. It's nothing I can earn. So weary Christian, you've been working, trusting, being faithful. You've been plowing a Christ-like character in your life. You've been trusting him. You've been seeking to grow. You've been seeking to be obedient. Do not give 
up. Because there's a flood coming. There's a flood coming. And God wants to use you, just like he used Noah, to rescue as many people as will follow you and listen to what you say. Maybe as you look at the story of Noah, you look at him and you say, you know, I've not trusted God for anything. I, I know right now that if I were to die, I'd be just like the people who were outside that ark. Pastor, I need to get in that ark. I need to get to a place where God can save me, where God can rescue me, where God can change me. Let me tell you how he does that. He does that through his son, Jesus Christ. The Father loves you so very much. He has provided a way of your salvation. He's provided a means by which all your sins can be forgiven. But not because you say, I'm sorry. Not because you do a bunch of good stuff to to outweigh the bad stuff. But because Jesus Christ died for your sins and suffered for your sins. He took your place. The Bible says that if you'll repent, turn from a life without God, and all you've created is sin and more trouble, if you will turn from that life where you're just damaging others and damaging yourself, and you turn to a life with God and you put your trust and your confidence in Jesus Christ, in Him alone, not yourself, not a church, not a faith statement, nothing. You just put your trust completely in Jesus Christ. The Bible says in John 3.16 that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but will have or possess everlasting life. And when that's genuine, the Bible stresses that you have everlasting life. If you could lose it, it's not everlasting. And so he wants to change you. He's provided a way for you to be rescued and saved and changed. The question is, will you surrender your life to him and put your trust in Jesus? This morning, we're going to stand and sing. And what what I want to ask you to do, if you need to trust Christ, is publicly, publicly to come out of the pew, out of the balcony, and come and talk to one of the pastors who will be standing here. And why do I ask you to do it publicly? Because Jesus himself said, if you will confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. We can't go around being secret Christians. He wants us to take a stand. He wants us to publicly put our trust in him. And so I want to give you the opportunity to do that. And when we stand and sing, I want to encourage you to slip out and come forward. Please, I'm telling you the truth. Don't worry about what anyone else will say or think. You may be a member here. You may have been a member here for a long time. doesn't matter. You want to settle this today. You want to come. And you want to trust him. And now let me tell you what the rest of the church is going to do. They're going to rejoice. They're going to just say, thank God. Thank God that he trusted Jesus. Thank God that she trusted Jesus. That's all they're going to do. And then brothers and sisters, as you look back over the course of your life right now, are you more than a church attender? Are you more than a church member who is simply active in all the activities we have? Or are you a man or a woman who is walking with God by faith day by day by day?
And maybe you may just need to bow your head in the pew and just say, oh God, I don't want to miss anything that you have for me on this side of heaven. I don't want to miss one defining moment that you have for me. And so God, forgive me, clear my mind, open my heart, teach me, grow me so that I may follow you. You may have a burden on your heart and you just need to pray. As always, the altar is open for that. Maybe there's someone that you're wanting to pray for. Maybe there's something that's, that's a need in your life. We want Wynn Baptist Church to be known as a house of prayer. We invite you to use this response time. It is a time for worship. And we worship when we yield ourselves to him. Will you respond? Our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, for this man, Noah. We thank you, Father, for the courage that he seems to display, but more significantly, the reverence that he had for you. That every day when he was doing something crazy from everybody else's point of view, that every day he trembled. Every day was a holy day because he was serving you. Father, I want to be a man like that. And I believe I share that desire with many brothers and sisters here. And so, Lord, we welcome you into this response time. We ask that you would speak to us and guide us in our heart-level response to you. And we pray especially for that person who's ready to trust you, who needs to do it publicly. Fill them, guide them, lead them in this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.